Praise be to God. As we jump into Romans, I've never been more excited and more daunted at the task and a little feeling the weight and the burden of Romans. Uh, Pastor I look up to and stand on his shoulders in a lot of ways. John Piper said he waited until he was about 55 to start Romans. And I know I look pretty good, but I'm not 55. So we're jumping in. And before we do, tonight is family night. We're going to be talking about family Bible study, how to do that, some challenges, sharing transparently, not always hitting home runs, but trying to get singles, just get on base. It's good to be in prayer, open the word together, and it never returns void. And as we jump into Romans, it's, it's one of those books where, especially for those that share maybe a similar testimony to mine, where I have some glimpses and, and kind of Polaroid images of when I accepted Christ, but there wasn't this huge dramatic death to life or addiction to freedom from that. It was this, yeah, I don't want to burn. Logical conclusion. There's heaven. There's some floating angels. Not sure how that all works, but it's not fire. So I'll go there. Notice there's no acknowledgement or desire to be with God. It was just, I don't want to burn. And so the more I grew, I've leaned on not just guys like John Piper, but Romans and, and seeing the work of God give us language, give me language for what happened. I remember being in an interview at church and I thought every Christian was, it was all love. We just love each other. But they asked some really hard questions. And they, and they kind of, it felt like they were doing it intentionally to make me look like a fool. And it was like, when did this happen? When were you saved, regenerated? And it's like, whoa, I don't know. And it's, look in Romans. It's like, oh, I don't know if I want to look in Romans. That's kind of scary. And so if you've ever read Romans or read Paul... Peter would comfort you and say, I don't even understand what he says. Like, it's hard. And so if you've ever read the Bible and you're like, I don't, hey, Peter, one of the authors and followers of Jesus said, it's hard to understand this guy. He's in a league of his own. There's a reason why he wrote this though, because it's, a, it's, it's one of those books that not only gives us language, but has had such a powerful and specific impact on transforming the lives of the men that God's used to build on the foundation of the apostles. Like St. Augustine, the most brilliant theologian of the early centuries, came to conviction of sin after reading the, the verses in chapter 13. Martin Luther, who got a, a position in a college teaching Bible, realized the doctrine of salvation from studying Romans 1.17, realizing that, that faith the righteous shall live by faith. And he was a, a guy who was trying to earn righteousness by his works. And he went on to lead the, the Reformation, going, hey, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and as he wrote this letter, John Wesley came over to the United States from Europe to be a chaplain to the colonies and a missionary to Indians. And he didn't even know the gospel. And he came back and was like, hey, that... This, this burning in my heart, I need to know Jesus. As we heard from the testimony this morning, I, I believe in Jesus now. I've had an experience with him and I didn't before that. John Bunyan was inspired as he studied the themes in Romans and he penned Pilgrim's Progress and Karl Barth's arguments to stand up against Christianity's liberal ideas of moving away from the work of Jesus that we could just love people and that's good enough and everyone will just end up 
in a warm, nice place, which is the same theology I had as, as a seven-year-old. And Carl's like, no, there's actually, we're not born inherently good. We're actually born with an inherent sin problem of selfishness and pride, and there needs to be a work that we can't do. There's a problem for you and I. So as we open this work that the Holy Spirit did through Paul for us, as well as for those believers, we pray that people would be saved. We pray that you would grow in your understanding of your own salvation and how God did that work in you. He began it. He's faithful to do it. And he has filled you, sealed you with the Spirit to walk in that same victory and passion that Paul has. Let's pray together. God, we pray that your Spirit would do what you do. Teach us, convict us, clarify in us, give us a language that we don't have. Give us a language that that we'll learn as we open your word together, that your spirit would confirm in us the work that you've begun, giving us peace and confidence that you're faithful to complete it as we grow to look more like your son in our thinking, acting, loving, and doing. And as we look at the gospel and being right in the gospel, may it take its full root and grow in us that would produce righteousness and fruit that would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The day after Pearl Harbor, a gentleman named Emery, like thousands of others, enlisted in the Coast Guard. And he had a shift that started Friday night, and so he had a few hours before his shift started, so he wanted to take a nap and get some rest. And his friend walks in, dressed to the nine, and he looks at Emery, he's like, hey, how do I look? My shoes are all spit shine. I got this hot date. I met this woman at the USO. She's got an apartment. She's rich. She's going to take me to the opera. We got a bunch of alcohol. It's going to be the best weekend of my life. And Emery is like, oh, well, I'll be praying for you. And Joe looks back as he's trying to leave. He's like, you're going to be praying for me. Why would you pray for me? I got it made. It's the best weekend of my life. How could you pray for me? He says, well, you'll be back Monday. And you're going to come back Monday changed. You won't be the same. Because you've been in sin all weekend and sin leaves its mark. When he said sin leaves its mark, Joe responded with some choice cuss words. I won't share. And he, and he left. So Emery prays for Joe, gets a little rest, gets up, does a shift. And in the lights, he sees Joe walk back up the ships. And he's like, what are you doing? I thought you had it made. I thought this was the best weekend of your life. And he says, how can I have a good time when someone's praying for you? You've ruined my weekend. I stood up my date, and I've been waiting for you to come on duty to explain to me how I can find God. It's a simple phrase. Sin leaves its mark. I'll pray for you. And yet, I'm always humiliated and humbled going, man, if I could just say that. When was the opportunity that I missed? Am I in step with what the Spirit's doing? Am I consumed with the gospel that, like he, Emery wasn't in a pulpit. He wasn't in Sunday school. He was on a ship when the world was at war, but he knew there was another battle happening. It was a spiritual battle, and he was on the turrets. He was in the kitchen making food. He was at war, waging war for his soul, saying, hey, I'll pray for you. You're going to be miserable. Sin is horrible. You can walk in victory, but you go ahead and sin. I'll pray for you. Go ahead and live in that. See how that feels. I'll see you on Monday, but you won't be the same. And the Holy Spirit, with the word of the Lord, just grabbed his heart and brought him to salvation. 
Stories like that motivate me and compel me to jump back into Romans and go, okay, this is the foundation that God called these apostles to go and lay as they set the groundwork for us to build upon. Maybe you can connect better with this story. Uh, Snoopy's run in the Peanuts cartoon. Linus had just thrown a stick for Snoopy and Snoopy began to run after it and then he stops and he responds by saying this, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice guy and he likes to chase sticks. I don't know if you chased any sticks this week, but I have. I don't know if you woke up this morning and your mind was chasing sticks. And I'm like, I'm preaching on Romans. I'm so excited. The weight of it, the wonder of it. This is awesome. And wait, I got to build a shed. I got this. And you know, am I going to get the drains in before the El Nino hits? And all of a sudden, sticks. And you're just chasing them, at least mentally for me. And I've had one of the weeks where every minute, no, every second was consumed by something and transitioning and moving. And even though I got places with my feet, my mind and my heart were elsewhere. So when we, when we look at this and go, okay, what in the world could 23 pages consume or be written on that would transform so many lives continually every time a human soul reads them. And so we think about what our lives are consumed by. Are we chasing sticks or are we chasing God's purpose? Are we in line with God's purpose? And the only way that that happens is the two things Paul brings up and and interweaves and continually brings to the surface is our first point is that justification for guilty sinners is God's grace alone in Christ alone, through faith alone. So for guilty sinners, for people that have said, thought, and done things against God, to be justified, it's by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, irrespective of either status or works. We can't earn it, and we're not born into it. And the beauty of that is that we, when we're faced with the reality of, okay, I can't earn it, I can't do enough good things, I can't go to enough conferences, read enough sing enough, know enough, but I also can't sin enough to out-sin God's love. It, it, it's a challenge. It's okay. I need to be in Christ. Well, how do I get in Christ? How do I find God? That's where we are brought to that place. And it's humbling because it levels the playing field. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The second theme is a redefinition of of the people of God. No longer are people divided according to their lineage, circumcision, culture, but according to faith in Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that all believers are true children of Abraham, regardless of their ethnic origin or religious practice. In Rome, they consisted of Jews and Greeks. In America, we have all kinds of ethnicities. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we should talk about the different pigments of our skin. We should divide again. Same thing was happening in Rome. It's amazing. We think about the Romans. Paul wanted the Christians in Rome to be right in the gospel. He didn't go after all these different things. And John Piper said, as 55 years old, he's like, you know what? I'm done chasing church growth patterns and this topic and we got to address this cultural issue we're just going on romans it's solid it's true it's weathered 
generations and challenges, and it's still here. And he said, and it's the same topic Paul's talking about. He wants Christians in Rome to be right in the gospel, so Rome would become a base of operations, so to speak, to proclaim the gospel in Spain. John, John Maxwell said the difference between great leaders and good leaders. Good leaders react, but great leaders anticipate. And they think through. And Paul was thinking through, okay, if we get Rome, okay, well, the problem, okay, Rome has Jews and Greeks, and everyone's divided, and the Jews got kicked out of Rome for a while, so now they're back, and they have these Greek Gentile churches growing, there's all this infighting and division, and we just talked about for a few weeks, Jesus prayed for the unity, as the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit were one, so the church should be one, and the only way for us believers to display the gospel and to get the gospel to Spain, we got to be one. We've got to get the church in Rome to be in the gospel, to be in Christ. And so Paul's two main themes, the integrity of the gospel committed to him and the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the Messianic community are clear in the first couple verses of the first chapter. And Paul calls the good news the gospel of God, verse 1, because he is the author and the gospel of his son, verse 9, because he is its substance. In verses 1 through 5, he focuses on the person of Jesus Christ, focusing on God's promise to bring the heir through the line of David. So as David's son by descent and powerfully declares God's son by the resurrection. In verse 16, he focuses on his work since the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. He's making that distinction. It's God's gospel. He wants the whole world to believe. No matter what your ethnicity or culture We're one in Christ, the Jew first, then the Gentile. Paul wants to establish a personal relationship with his readers. He's writing to an all Rome who are believers. He's writing to everyone in Rome who are believers, irrespective of their ethnic origin, although he knows most of them are Gentiles. He thanks God for all of them and prays for them constantly as he's tried many times unsuccessfully to to be there and visit them, verses 8 through 13. And he has this obligation to preach the gospel in the capital city of the world. And he's eager to do so because it's God's righteousness. And he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So that's where we're going. We'll land in the most amazing, compelling verse, verse 17, that drew Martin Luther away from his fixation on works to seeing it's a gift of God's faithfulness to him for faith, that the righteous should live by faith. So he feels the need in the beginning, Paul's position in prayer to go to Rome. His position, he needs to establish his credentials. He didn't start the church in Rome. They don't know him. They've heard stories about him. And so he's like, hey, as an apostle, to summarize the gospel, this is the gospel that I received from Jesus. It's my gospel. Here's what I'm, here's my message. Here's why I want to come. Here's what I want to accomplish through the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First off, we have a couple things. Our English language trips us up and hinders us. Servant is actually slave, doulos. I don't know why in the translations uh, I want to be the excellent leader and thinking things through, and this just trips us up in the sermon. We should have just said, hey, a slave of Christ. Why in the English, I don't know. When we get to heaven, I'll have a thumb wrestle with a guy and be like, I don't know why you did that. You made it confusing for me. 
Not everyone's going to take Greek, okay? Just write slave. It'll, it'll be help us all out. Somewhere along the line, King James or somebody thought, they, I don't know. Back on track. It's slave, okay? Write that in your Bible. In the Old Testament, it was an honorable succession of individual Israelites, beginning with Moses and Joshua, who called themselves Yahweh's servants. But it's not just a servant like at Olive Garden, who decides, you know what? I can get paid more in and out, so I'm not showing up to work. I'm your servant. That's not how it works. It's a slave where you don't have the right. You don't have the decision-making of a servant in our culture. It's a slave. He bought me with a price. He's the Lord. He's in control. And it also connotates that as we see, truly, I am your servant, Lord. I am your slave. Tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. I'll get it done. And then the title apostle, on the other hand, was a distinctive Christian name from the beginning. Jesus himself chose at his discretion of the twelve and Paul claimed to have been added to their number. That's why he mentions I'm untimely born, which Jesus already had his apostles, and then he added me to the deck because I was kind of the rough guy on the edges. It was getting a little too Christian, too calm. You know, he's like, we've got to mix some things up. Let's get Paul in here. And he mixed some things up. So when he claimed to have been added to their number, the qualifications, he kept having to qualify himself because the qualifications for an apostle you had to be commissioned by Jesus. That means you're an eyewitness of the historical Jesus, at least and specifically his resurrection. That's why when Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, that was his commissioning. That was his authority from Jesus to Paul. And elsewhere it says Jesus discipled him for three years in the desert. So there's this very clear authority and office given that we can't have today because the apostleship was given from Jesus, by Jesus, to build the church off the cornerstone, which is Jesus, as the foundation of the apostles. First the prophets, then the apostles. It's the same kind of authority to preach, and with that authority, establish the church. So Paul's twofold de- designation is that I'm a slave, and I'm an apostle, and it's striking because they contrast each other. First, slave is a title of humility, express Paul's sense of personal insignificance. I don't have rights. I'm not my own. Christ purchased me. And then apostle, on the other hand, was a title of great authority and distinguish. And we see with this privilege and dignity that Jesus appointed him to, the slave being a general Christian word, every disciple was to be a humble servant, humble slave, fully devoted to following Jesus. There was no other devotion allowed. And we were completely submitted to him But yet, apostle is a special title reserved for the twelve, and Paul, as an apostle, he'd been set apart for the gospel. And that office ended when we see the apostleship, when Jesus selected his apostles to go, and they have that unique authority. And now, we go and herald the apostles' work. We, We proclaim it, we share it, we have studies around it as a family or friends, and we we dive deep into it, and then we come up for air because it's so deep and dense with the work of the Spirit. So how did Paul intend his readers to understand his reference to having been set apart? This word in the Greek has the same root meaning as Pharisee. And that was deliberate because Paul had been a Pharisee. So he juxtaposes the idea that when he was set apart for the law, he persecuted to the law's degree, even being a part of the first killing of Stephen. 
He was so committed, and now he's set apart for the gospel. So he's saying, look, as a Pharisee, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, and I accomplished it to a T, but now I'm set apart for the gospel, and I'm going to be consumed and, and just so compelled to go everywhere and tell everyone the gospel, because it's, it contrasts. The gospel fulfills the law. We have no, we have no basis to per- persecute or hurt people because they're, they're not fulfilling the law because Jesus fulfilled it. Now I have the gospel to proclaim the good news that God came and took away the pain and the sin and the shame. And so verse, thir- verse 7, I don't want to discourage you in your scripture reading, but enlighten and help you. You could take your pencil and cross out. I know in Revelation it says don't add or take away, but we're helping what has been added. In verse 7 it says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called and in your Bible, it says to be saints, but there's no process to be or to become. It's, they're called saints. So you could just cross that out. That was added in the King James translation. Again, a little beef with the translators. This is the Greek, the original language. It says called saints. Why is that significant? Because the gospel would still have to have its process but the process was complete in Jesus. There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing beyond Jesus to obtain. There's no experience. Or there's no special revelation. It's all in Jesus. It's all through Jesus, from Jesus, for Jesus. And the, his spirit is in us, sealing us. So we have all things complete. And that gives us peace because we're not looking or wandering. And he's saying, look, you're saints. You're called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing that Paul does is he spends verse 2 through 6 explaining the gospel, appealing to the Jews, saying, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, is descended from David, which is the gospel of God. All of it is focusing on the gospel of God, that God's own good news for a lost world. That's what gospel means. It's God's own good news for a lost world, and it's Him. God is the gospel. A.W. Tozer said that God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. God's looking for people through whom he can do the impossible, but what a pity that we plan only the things that we can do ourselves. See, Paul was looking at it going, okay, here's the law. I can accomplish the law. I can get it done. Paul was a freak. His, his family had a bunch of money. They had the best school they sent him to. They had the best tutors. He was studying like 18 hours a day. Probably not literally. That was a little figurative exaggeration. But he was studying all the time. I had a friend that was Japanese, and he was really nice. When I was a freshman, he took me surfing. He was a senior. I still don't know why that relationship happened, because as a senior, I didn't take freshman surfing, maybe a sophomore. But he was one of the smartest guys I think I'll ever meet. And, and he was from Japan, and he'd go back to school on the summers in Japan. And when he came here, he had his you know, American Tuscarora High studies, and then the rest of the day, he had his Japanese studies. His studies, and I was like, dude, do you ever sleep? He's like, no, I just play Halo, and I study. And it paid off, because he aced the, the, the ACT or the SAT. He missed one question the first round, and then he retook it, because he knew what question he missed. He was that smart. I'm like, oh, so you probably had something in common with with Paul because you just knew stuff and you just can intake stuff and hold it. But God's not looking for the smartest people. And he takes the smartest guy and he humbles him. And Paul doesn't come in with credentials. He's like, man, I'm a slave of Christ. 
You think that you can earn your way? I'm not even going to talk about my credentials because they don't matter. I can't earn my way into God's love. But oh, by the way, you think you've sinned enough that God can't love you? You think you're selfish enough or prideful enough or you have stuff you can't figure out and God surely doesn't want to help you with it? Have you killed Christians this past week? Have you, have you just persecuted anyone because they love Jesus? Paul made a, li- that was his occupation was killing Christians. I don't, I mean, on the moral scale of the worst thing you could do, killing people and then killing God's people. Like he just takes it up a notch. That's the kind of guy he was. He's like, well, killing people is not enough. Let's kill Christians. Then I'll fulfill the law because they're against, he thought he was helping God, but he was really hurting God. And then God said, hey, stop persecuting me because I'm the gospel and this is my bride and it it affects me personally. Now I'm going to tell you how much you're going to suffer. Go to the world. And Tozer's saying, what are we doing? Why are we settling for things that we can control? Why aren't we being consumed and compelled by the gospel to, to let God, as a slave of the gospel of Jesus Christ, lead us to the places where his love is supposed to flow through us to them? It's not our doing, it's our receiving and then sharing. So we see his motivations. Verses 11 through 17, his encouragement first off. To begin with in verse 11 indicates Paul simply wants to help them. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. This isn't some secret spiritual revelation he has that he's going to hold a conference and things are going to get crazy and he's going to punch people in the face. No, he's, I have this spiritual gift of presence. Every week between Monday and Sunday, do you feel that longing to get together? That spiritual gift of presence, of of being with the believer. When you miss a Sunday, it's like, man, i got to get back together. Paul had never been there. And he's like, man, I'm I'm hearing the testimony that's going around encouraging people, but I want to be there. I want to encourage you. We see, to impart some spiritual gift to you, to strengthen you, verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So he's talking about, early on, I'm praying for you and your faith is gone out and encouraged other believers, I can't wait to be in your presence. And we're going we're gonna to tell of what God's done. We're going to tell of the miracles. We're going to tell of the persecution and how God's given you the strength to endure. We're going to tell of the miracle of, of salvation. We're going to tell the stories of being sick and being healed. We're going to encourage each other's faith that God is working. Jesus is on his throne and Jesus is the gospel. I can't wait to be there with you. I can't wait to be there in life group. It's going to be awesome can't wait to be there in a, in a Bible study or one-on-one discipleship. I need to be encouraged. That's the baseline of what Jesus calls us into, out of sin and into a gospel community. And if you're not, if you're isolated, Satan's like, finally, I can get some at least distraction. Yeah, they might be saved, but barely, and they're not going to be effective. I'll get them off the battle station. So we see Paul is is excited to be there to encourage them. Paul's spirit was for all practical purposes duplicated in the life of General Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. Once General Booth was standing before Queen Victoria and she said, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, your majesty, some people's passion is money, some people's passion is fame, but my people's passion is for men to acknowledge Jesus' name, to believe and be saved. And Paul also knew the benefit would be mutual because he goes on in verse 12 to say, 
by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He needed encouragement. Why would Paul need encouragement? John says the same thing in 1 John 1, 3, 4. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That when we are together, we're going to have a joy that's complete as we share what God's doing in our lives. Or prayer requests that we need. Trusting God will answer. Why would they need to be encouraged? It's this humble expression saying, man, I'm beat up. When we look at Paul, both John and Paul, they had very trying races to run for the Lord. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so the Jews hated him and rejected him. And they're like, you sell out, you loser. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go share the gospel with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were like, we don't understand you. You're too smart for us. Ah, we don't get it. We don't like you. We want to live in sin. Why are you telling us what we're doing is wrong? You're a loser. Get out of here. And they stoned him. Which stoning is different definition. We want to redefine that to you. It's not what our neighbor does processing marijuana and smoking it. Stoning was taking you to a cliff. The adrenaline rush must have been crazy. I don't know. And they took rocks and everyone that heard or saw or thought you did something wrong would, would practice their pitching arm or their throw out from the right field to catcher. They would just pelt you with stones until you would fall off, pass out off the cliff. And then bowling was the practice. They found the biggest boulder they could roll off and, and smash you, crush you, and then intent to kill you. So Paul was a pretty hot guy. Like his face and his must, no, he was messed up. He was a gnarly, small, face was all bashed in, nose was busted, head shaved, scarred up. He was messed up. He served and sacrificed. And there's times when he got stoned and he got picked up. His disciples, his crew was like, hey, let's, this is pretty gnarly. Let's get out of here. And Paul's like, no, we got to go back. And they're like, no, Paul, there's the other town. They have an in and out too. It's okay. We can go get in and out there. He's like, no, I don't care about in and out. care about them knowing Jesus. We're going back. I'm like, they're like, they already almost killed you. And he's like, it's all right. I'm just going to walk this one off. Like the epitome of just rub some dirt on it. We'll get it done. That's his faith. We gotta be together. And when we're together, we're gonna encourage one another. That's the gift that we can give one another. The art of presence. But we're so distracted chasing sticks. Week after week, oh man, I invited this person to church. Ah. Time and time, hey, pastor, if I go to church, when I go to church, it's your church, I'm going there. Great, we got a bunch of seats for you, but what is the if and when? Because all we have is heaven in front of us, and I think it's coming closer. I don't know what you're missing out on or what God's purpose is for you, but you have to be together. And there's people that need prayer, and there's miracles we're going to see, and God's working, but people aren't together, and it's because we're chasing sticks. We're distracted. We're overcommitted. We're not connected. Paul's like, man, i got to be there. There's this obligation to preach the gospel, the capital of the world. And it's this righteousness that's been revealed and I can't contain it. The whole world has to know. So this obligation, verses 14 and 15, we see that he shares with us. When he says, I'm obligated both to Greek and barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. The gospel is for all. The good news of the gospel is for all, but only applies to those who answer the call. And as he goes there, he's saying, look, I... I have to share. I'm eager to share in verse 15. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
Paul had just as many reasons to feel reluctant and embarrassed as we do. Rome was the imperial pride and power, the city, the who's who and what's what, Hollywood, all the glitz and glamour, and here's this gnarled looking small dude I just described his figure. It's not someone you, you really want to be seen with in public. It's like, I don't know, we can't bring him home. Mom's going to freak out. Like, at least give him a shower. Like, dude, that guy's gnarly. What's his past like? And that's the one that Jesus chose. That's why he's like, I've, I'm humble opinion. I'm beat up and, and crushed it, but I'm not abandoned. I'm not destroyed. Paul, who wanted to visit the capital city, not as a tourist, not because they, they're, you know, drive through America, did a spotlight on some great places to eat. We got to go to Rome. It's going to be great. I can't wait to go to Rome. It's interesting when you think about it, there's this trend that's going around how many times guys think of Rome. And my sister texts me, I didn't know it was a thing. And I'm like, you want me to know how many times I think of Rome? That's a weird question, Brooke. I'm like, just about daily or every other day. Any other guys think about Rome often? Apparently, like on the internet, most guys think of Rome. I think about it because it's this center of entertainment. The armies, you know, there's very few armies that match the power and prestige of Rome. The art that was borrowed and appreciated, and, 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 and yet they fell. Why? Because their culture embraced the same ideology and views our culture is embracing. So I think about that and go, okay, what do we, how did Paul, why did Paul go to Rome? Well, it really was because Rome was the gateway to Spain. And there was a church divided. Interesting, aren't America, our church isn't that united. A lot of similar things with racial and ethnic divide. And, and I heard it said one time, why is Sunday the most segregated day of the week? Like that? Caused me to pause a little bit and go, that's interesting. Why are we not united on the gospel? Why aren't we one in Christ? Why isn't being right in Christ the priority? Why is the church continually splintered off on these things instead of, hey, how can we help you win in Christ? Because when you're in Christ, Paul says you're more than conquerors. And Paul wasn't persuaded by the things that we are to not share. He's like, I'm obligated. I owe God a great debt and the way I pay that debt is to my neighbor. The way I pay that debt is to my employer. The way that I pay that debt to God is to go to Rome. And I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get who knows what. But I'm going. And if you read the end of Acts, his followers and people had, like, they had dreams of it. They're like, hey, dude, you don't go. To, you're going to die. He's like, sweet, I'm going. I'm going. I'm like, what are you doing? We just told you it's going to not be good for you. He's like, I know. It's good. I'm going. Because I'm a slave to Jesus. If we're not a slave to Christ, then we'll show up when we want, and we'll do what we want when we feel like it. Paul wasn't that way. He says, I'm obligated to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. If we're right in the gospel, no matter where we go, the coffee shop, our employer, at home, around a kitchen table, when the last thing you want to do and the kids are ignoring you, is trying to round the cats up and get the Bible open. But if you're consumed by the gospel, you know the greatest work you do for the kingdom is in your home. You know the, the most profitable soil to till is the, those in your home, your kids, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, your life group, kids and youth ministry. It's this great debt, this view that he has a debt to God and it's paid to men. What if our perspective was that way? Okay, I have this great debt to God and I'm obligated to preach the gospel. We see the great 
19th century missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, realized this truth when he was suggested in a conversation, hey, you love Chinese and Oriental people. That's why you're in China, right? And he said, laughed and shook his head, no, I'm not in China because I love the Chinese. I'm there because I love God. And that's where God's called me to go serve. Time and time again, through different centuries, there's always been this, oh, I know why you're, no, it's because God. God's the gospel. Oh, I know, because it's going to look good this way, you're going to make money, or you're going to, because of the, no, it's because of God and the gospel. The freshness of that motivation of, I owe a great debt to my Savior, and it's paid by loving my wife selflessly, and seeking the better of her. By respecting and my husband and trying to serve him, that's how I pay the debt I owe to God. By my employer, or the, by serving in my community, that's how I pay the debt. How do you do that? You bless. We're called to be a blessing and, and seek the, the prosperous of our community and our, and our state. You begin in prayer. It's an acronym, bless. Begin in prayer. Second, we listen. If you're like me, that's the worst part about blessing people is listening. Because I know the I've thought through. I'm, I've rea- I haven't reacted. I've already anticipated. Oh, I heard you, you said that. Now here's the answer. And it's like, I gotta listen. I just gotta sit and be present And by me being present and listening, okay, we'll see where God leads. Then eat. That's my favorite part about blessing. Prayer, listening, and then eating. Grabbing a meal. Hey, where are we going to eat? Where are we going to have this barbecue? We're going to in and out. We're going to have tacos. Sweet, let's do this. And then you, you listen. I can listen if there's food around, right? Serving other people or having them serve you. I love that idea too. Because I have a lot of needs and my skill set is limited. So, hey, can you come help me do this? And then guess what? You have a captive audience. So humble yourself, guys. I didn't know that was a thing, but some guys don't like to borrow things. They just go buy things, even as big as a tractor. It's like, wow, I've never been in that position, but I guess that makes sense. Like, I'd rather just borrow someone's tractor because there's the maintenance, there's all the sidetrack. You can invite people to serve you. You get them there, but there's that heart to serve them as well. And that's why it's a challenge because sometimes they don't want to be served either. They'll just go buy their own tractor. It's like, no, that's... That's why Paul's like, come, I want to get to Romans. I can't, I don't know why God's not letting me come to you. I want to serve you and you serve me. He's begun in prayer. He's listened to their testimony. He wants to come have a meal with them, serve them, them serve him, and share the gospel. Bless. Are we blessing our community? I think we have work to do. It's a permission to play value when we say we want to be known by our love. Because growing and looking at our history and even sending uh, one of our elder sons down to San Diego, God sent him, and, and we just got to stand back and see, and I got a message from the pastor saying, hey, thanks for sending us Noah. I'm like, well, we didn't really have a choice in the matter. We're slaves of Christ, and that was his assignment. So we celebrated it, and he's like, he loves the Lord, and his passion for God's word is impressive. And I thought that would encourage his family and us as a church to know that's the mark. We're standing on the shoulders of the apostles and those that have gone before because they're right in Christ. And the disciples, the slaves of Christ who are fully devoted to making disciples, God's saying, great, now I'm sending them here, San Diego. Now I'm sending them to North Paso. Now I'm sending you back to your homes and your workplaces. What if we did this? How quickly California would turn around. And we don't have to worry about a recall or election ballot or any propaganda. It's the gospel. It's already done. That's the point of every Sunday coming together saying, Jesus already finished it. 
Our enemies defeated, and we owe the great debt, we pay it to our neighbor. Let's get to work. So as we conclude, one of the guys that's challenged me, Carl Medeiros, wrote a book called Speaking of Jesus, The Art of Not Evangelism. So those of you that don't have the gift of evangelism, you still have to do the work, so there's some tension there. But he helps us out. He said he's a missionary to the, to the Muslim world. He was at a large church in, in Waco, Texas, and did this exercise, and he was saying, okay, guys, what is the gospel? So they started throwing out things like, well, it's freedom from sin, or it's eternal life. He's like, keep going, keep going, and he stayed at the chalkboard, and it's moral purity, it's grace, unconditional love, healing, deliverance, redemption, faith in God, new life. He's writing this all out. He's like, what's the gospel? And he says, all right, is that good? We, did we get everything? Did we miss anything? And the room goes silent. And everyone seemed to think and kind of shake their heads and look around. And a girl, after a minute, raised her hand and said, how come none of us mentioned Jesus? And he put the chalk down and said, exactly. We're going to take a break. We go so quickly past Jesus to the law. What can we do? How can we earn this? How can we do this? Oh, they're repaying a debt. Okay, we'll just do what they're doing. Active. Or we stop short of Jesus and think, well, I can live however I want because if I go to Jesus, he's going to tell me what to do and I don't want to surrender to him. But we miss we miss the confidence that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. See, in our hearts, we want power. We want to have power. We want to have the peace that power brings. We want to have the, the perspective and the, and the confidence to one degree or the next. But when we, when we humble ourselves and say, okay, I'm going to be a slave to Christ and he has the power. The gospel's the power of God to remove sin and shame not by works, by grace alone, through faith alone, and then in Christ alone. We rest in Jesus, and we just walk as he walked. We love as he loved. We don't have to go beyond Jesus. We don't have to fear that we're never going to be comforted or cared for or healed when there's something beyond us, and there's something that we're missing out in, in life that the world says, no, if you follow Jesus, that's lame. You're losing out on something. No, you've actually gained the only thing that will last. The confidence in the gospel. People are ashamed of the gospel because they want to earn it and impress God by their amazing intellect or works. Or they're ashamed of the gospel because they want to live it up on this side of heaven and think they can enjoy all that the world has and that's what they're meant for. But Paul's saying, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. I'll lay down all my works and I will... I will serve him and I'll be content knowing that I'm giving up everything this world has to offer to serve Christ, to live as Christ and to die as gain, he says. And he concludes with this from faith to faith, fulfillment of Habakkuk 2.4. Again, Paul shows us how brilliant he is. Because I'm sure all of you were probably like, oh, Paul's going to conclude this with Habakkuk 2-4. Like, there's no other way to finish this off except Habakkuk 2-4. I see it coming, and you're on the edge of your seats going, come on, Pastor, Habakkuk 2-4, right? That's where we're at. No, none of us are Jews, and none of us are as smart as Paul. That's why none of us wrote this. But he's like, dude, you guys got to get this. It's from faith for faith. God's faithful. It's God's faith that he gave you that your faith would grow. 
And then when your faith is shared, it's like there's four things here. We don't have another sermon to go into it, but it, it compels me to say, Paul knows the depth of God's love to encourage us to say when our faith is shared, it spreads and it builds other people's faith. And the righteous shall live by faith, which also points back to reminding us as we sung that song, he'll never leave you. He's faithful. He'll never forsake you. That builds our faith to go into the unknown. And as we think about this call for you to lay down your life and come to Jesus, the gift of righteousness is Rome. Romans 5.17 calls it. It's not human righteousness, but it's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God that originates in God is given to us as we see that he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, when we're right in the gospel, we have the right life. And we know the right thing to do everywhere and every time because we're righteous. Not just how God looks at us, but how God's empowered us through the Spirit to do His works. So as we see these gloves here, as the elements are passed, our life is like the glove, and and the world says, hey, fill it with sand or wood, and all that does is splinter us, and it might look like it's alive, because there might be some filling in there, but it's not active, it's just stagnant and stale. Maybe you put some food in there, and then it gets moldy and gross, and maggots grow, it's disgusting. But that's all the world has to offer. And the only way we can fulfill God's purpose for us is if God is in us. And so that's what he says when the Holy Spirit comes in and fills our life. Then we have our moving and our being and we can accomplish the works when he's in us, moving through us. And so as we end with this illustration, if you're an empty glove, then you need to receive Jesus and let his spirit fill you and let him rule in your life, bringing the peace and the presence of Christ and all the inheritance that comes with him to accomplish his works. And if you are a Christian, the way to be victorious is to remind yourself and pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you and teach you that you would walk in his ways, learning to love those and be compelled to go to those that maybe before you didn't see or you didn't realize you have a debt to God and you pay that by serving your spouse or your employer or leading your family and it's okay, Spirit, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I don't either. That's why we go to the Word every Sunday. That's why we take communion and reminding ourselves, oh yeah, we're people that blow it, but we don't have to blow it anymore. We walk in confidence empowered by the Spirit to do His will and His work, His way. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the hope. We thank You for the promise. We thank You for the power of the gospel, that we don't have to be ashamed of it. We're not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. As we see miracles of lives being changed that have heard the gospel, responded to you and believed in you, putting their faith that you gave them in you, that they encourage our faith as we encourage theirs. Lord, as we sit together and are about to take communion together, we pray that Those who have yet to believe would trust in you, turning from sin and believe upon Jesus. They'd become new creations, fully felt by your hand filling them as a glove and having their moving and making, accomplishing your purpose, Lord. And for us Christians, that we would walk in that victory knowing you're in us, moving us, shaping us, and bringing everything to completion in your time. And that we would rest in that. 
that you're faithful and that your faith has built our faith and that our faith would continue to build the next generation's faith as we go forth and share the hope of the gospel, which is Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.